0: Prairie and countless of thousands of other churches are having a little uh, little issue today because the program that we all use to coordinate and upload and synchronize things is for the second week in a row down so I learned something last week remember I had my, my laptop up, um, and I was trying to like call out which when to turn the slide you know well i want to I want to say i 'm very grateful april that you're uh, you 're able and willing to do that, um, but this year i this Sunday I got smart and I put little red boxes next to where we had a slide change. And thanks to Han, April has a copy. So let's see if we can do do this together, April. So I want to say last Thursday afternoon, I went to one of my favorite breweries, Outfield Beer in Bonner Springs. Um, Not for a beer because it was like only two in the afternoon. Um, I went to donate red blood cells Outfield beer is owned by one of the Caw Prairie families, um, Bo and Angie Martin. And uh, they actually provide the Monarch beer to the Kansas City Monarchs. Uh, they, uh, all their beers have a baseball theme name. And uh, I just really like them. So anyway, I couldn't have a beer, obviously. at Well, by the time I left, it was 3.30. Um, couldn't be you know, that early in the day. Um, but I, this was a visit in which the beer part wasn't the highlight. So I, I met, well, I met a centrifuge named Alex, I think it's called, and a phlebotomist named Florence. Florence the phlebotomist. I'm not going to tell you her real name, but I just thought I would remember Florence better than another other made-up name. I'm not going to tell you her real name because I'm going to tell you a little bit of her real interesting story. First off, Florence did an amazing job. Apparently, my veins roll, which I could tell from one of my other visits because, you know, multiple sticks, and it was like, ouch. Um, so I got my courage back up, and um, this time, this young woman, Florence, got my vein. She Apparently, she said, I just followed the roll. So I'm like, oh, thank you. Um, so and she explained what the blood extraction, the centrifuging, the fluid return process, Laura, I know you're in here, and I'm sorry. It's probably making you ill. My wife, Laura, does not like to hear medical things. <laughs> um, but on top of all that, she was super friendly. And you know, I'd like to invite everybody I meet, either to church or back to church. In fact, in fact I met Imy uh, Smith, if anybody knows Ime. She was a regular up until COVID. Now she's kind of hunkering down with a lot of uh, COVID, uh, COVID caution. I saw her at Walmart on Friday, and so we laughed and chatted, and I invited her back, right? Um, but when pastors, especially like me, when we meet somebody who's got, who's got smarts and is friendly and has a good sense of humor, we're sometimes like, hey, Holy Spirit, should I be like thinking in my head, does she have gifts or he have gifts that the kingdom could use? Like the kingdom at Car Prairie. Uh-huh. Um, so I was thinking as I, as I was talking to this phlebotomist, man, I should introduce her to Drew. She'd be great. In student ministry, or I should introduce her to Shalia because she'd be great as part of the hospitality and welcoming team. And anyway, I was impressed with her and was thinking about how do I start a not just a general church conversation, but a art church conversation. Um, up until the point she told me about her Christmas, now she was still every bit as friendly, charming, even, and professional to the to, to the nth degree. But the essence of our conversation. <laughs> was that she doesn't let her family celebrate Christmas. Not because she's a Jehovah's Witness, and not because she's trying to punish her kids or anything. In fact, she and her partner um, agree that the kids really miss Christmas. Last year, apparently, her son or their son went up to her and said, Mom, I know you disagree with Christmas for whatever reason, but can we please celebrate Christmas? Because all the kids are doing it. (laughs) And she gave in and did it. And this year, apparently, she's going to host Christmas dinner. And um, she, has a, she has a letter that she's going to read to them. And she, she tells me this with a twinkle in her eye. She said at one point, I really love being the problem child in the family. <laughs> I'm like, man, you'd be good at youth ministry once you get over the whole Christmas thing. Uh, <laughs> but. Um, Her deal with Christmas was the pagan origins. You know, the winter solstice was co-opted by the early Christians to take its pagan focus away and and give it to Jesus. And anybody knows that if you look it up on Wikipedia. But um, that was kind of a a deal stopper for her. Um, Anyway, so I said to her, you know what, it's been great to meet you, and I will be praying for you. And then her next-door phlebotomist leaned over, and she said, you and lots of other people. (laughs) But after all that kind of, not anti-Christian, but kind of Christian-critical conversation about Christmas, I asked her about her background or the church she grew up in, and she told me this, this amazing story, or these amazing memories, of going to a Pentecostal church. She said the, the service was supposed to be three hours, but on a bad day, it was five hours. Just going to say, going to lay that out here right now, <laughs> uh, count your blessings. Um, but she said, it was crazy. And if you, if you know Pentecostal worship, there's up and down and there's jumping and sometimes gymnastics. And it, I mean, she's like, and I thought she was going to mock it. But you know what? This, this um, confidently sassy um, professional woman said, I, I loved how much they wanted to be filled with the Holy Spirit. I didn't understand it. And sometimes it made me crazy. But they loved God. And they wanted his Holy Spirit. And it makes me think, church, raises the question, do you know what it feels like to have the Holy Spirit in your life? So today we're concluding, as I said during communion, the series we believe in. And today's message in particular is focusing on the third article of the creed, (laughs) And I'm going to ask you to bear with me as we unpack this. So, so Chris made a joke. Or he's on vacation this week, by the way. Um, but he, he teased me at the front end, like, I got to pick, the, pick my topic. So I got the, you know, the good theologically deep ones. But these are also the long ones. So I'm going to ask you to, to bear with me. This is like the words of the apostles since you know, the days of old. So um, we're not going to, we're not going to um, linger. But I do want to ask some good questions. So... The first is, I believe in the Holy Spirit. And so what does spirit mean? To me it means, well, there's there's three different words for it in the language that, that circulates in Christianity. Ruach is the word for spirit and breath in Hebrew. Pneuma is the word in Greek. And then spiritus, or spiritu, is the name in Latin. And obviously the Latin one is the one we kept going, but we still use pneuma like pneumatic, pneumonia, things like that. But but the thing about ruach is God's God's holy spirit a windstorm was brooding over creation like a mother hen at least in the first creation story and I love this in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth the earth was formless and empty the darkness covered the deep waters and the spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters the spirit of God is the the word can sometimes mean what what a a hen does when it's laying eggs. It's just brooding and helping something come forth. So that's part of this Holy Spirit. And then in the second creation story, in Genesis 2, um, the more anthropomorphic one, God says this, "...when the Lord God made the earth and heavens, neither wild plants nor grains were growing on the earth. For the Lord God had not yet sent rain to water the earth, and there were no people to cultivate the soil. Instead, springs came up from the ground and watered all the land." Then the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground. He breathed the breath of life, the ruach of life, into the man's nostrils, and the man became a living person. So here the spirit isn't windy, it's breath. It's God's breath and spirit. And then back to the wind again in in the New Testament. We're going to look at Pentecost here, where God gives the gift of the Holy Spirit to the early apostles. On the day of Pentecost, all the believers were meeting together in one place. Suddenly, there was a sound from heaven like the roaring of a mighty windstorm, and it filled the house where they were sitting. Then what looked like flames or tongues of fire appeared and settled on each of them. And everyone present was filled with the Holy Spirit, the holy breath of God. And so when they exhaled, they began speaking in other languages as the Holy Spirit gave this them, gave them this ability. Man, this spirit is deep. <laughs> and today we're going to think about what it means as we go down the, the rest of the lines in this third article. So I believe in the Holy Christian, which means or which means Catholic worldwide. I believe in the Holy Christian. Catholic, which means worldwide Christian church. So, this is when you see if, if you're in a church that says, and we, we choose not to do that because it just makes people all complicated. We don't say I believe in the holy Ca-, we in the Holy Catholic Church. We we use the word Christian. It's kind of a placeholder. But even when you do hear the word Catholic, it's not. They're not saying I I believe in the Holy Catholic Church, um, not the Holy Baptist one or the Holy Presbyterian one. What it means is I believe in this worldwide church. That's that's big enough to include everybody. It's not limited, not just to one peoples or tribes or nations, not even to one cultural style. Not to anything that humankind can come up with. It is God's church and it goes all over the world. Um, so that, that is what the word Catholic means. And um, sometimes I'm humbled to remember how worldwide our holy Christian church is. So the next line, I believe in the communion of saints. Now if you're if you're hearing this for kind of the first time or haven't thought about it a lot, when you think, oh, the communion of saints, we do communion on Sunday. I bet that's part of it. Well, communion doesn't mean this communion, <laughs> but it does mean the the fellowship of the saints. And whether it feels like it or not, you all are the saints. <laughs> um, God is God is saying God has moved us to confess. I believe in the fellowship of the of the worshiping church. That means we need to go regularly to worship, and sometimes to service. I um I think I have a do I have a picture of the group at the harvesters? I can't remember what order I put those pictures in. Um, there's a pair of pictures here of the harvesters somewhere. Um, at, we went to harvesters in Kansas City, Missouri, and these were the saints. Um, it's pro- I probably have it out of order. <laughs> um, anyway, but uh, the, the author of Hebrews writes this. Let us not neglect our meeting together as some people do, but encourage one another, and especially now that the day of his return is drawing near. So the thing about this is, it sounds like people in first century Palestine needed the same sort of reminders the people in 21st century America need. It's like, hey, there's a supernatural useful purpose, not just a, a human feeling reason, to be part of the communion of saints, to be together on a regular basis. And another way of saying it is the phrase means that the church, the holy church has a holy calling for each of us to be holy people. That, that phrase means we'll trust that we each are part of this assembly of sinner saints and to behave that way and to trust the Spirit enough to let it direct our steps when we leave the communion of the saints and join the chaos of the outside world. A writer named Asheda Moore says this, The whole of Jesus' ministry was to establish a community so convinced of their belovedness to God that they proclaim the belovedness of others. Belovedness is a massive act of owning and accepting your humanness as a gift from a God who deeply loves you. When you feel this sense of communion of the saints, you feel that I belong to the family of God. You feel like you're part of not just this, this room, this service, this this church co but you know that you're a part of the worldwide communion of saints, Anyway, so the next line is, I believe in the forgiveness of sins. And if you've been following the series, if you were here especially last week, when I talked about the second article of the Creed, based on I believe in Jesus Christ, and then listed all the parts under that, you might be thinking, well, why don't we talk about, why don't we talk about the forgiveness of sins in the Jesus section of the Creed? After all, Jesus' death on the cross, Christians believe, I believe, was how we were redeemed from our sin, right? That he paid the price that, that the devil wanted paid, the devil had control over us, until Jesus paid that price. And he did that. So why isn't that in the second article closer to Jesus? I believe the reason that the forgiveness clause was put here is because we need, under the Holy Spirit's name, is because we need the Holy Spirit to really understand or to do forgiveness. It reminds me that while Jesus is the one whose death made our forgiveness possible, the Holy Spirit is the one who makes our forgiveness visible to the world because we act like it. Forgiven people are grateful people. Forgiven people are kind people. Forgiven people are forgiving people. You know, I'm I'm part of a well, I'm leading uh, about a four-month-long weekly men's study, 6 a.m. to 7 a.m. Tuesday mornings, called Messengers Made, and uh, we're going to be launching a in-person version um, in September if you're if you're interested. But so me and a bunch of really cool guys, we get up every morning with coffee or water or something. None of us look good, and uh, it's all on a Zoom call and. Um, so we started out by reading this, this book about the Bible, kind of a provocative book on the Bible's true nature. A Christian, rigorously academic um, college professor. And then we, we read the book Irresistible from Andy Stanley, who caused all sorts of waves when he printed that book. It was a little too gracious and unsettling for, his, uh, for his, um, the people that were used to reading him. Um, but it's a fantastic book, and Chris and I actually did a whole series on it. It's called Irresistible. So we read through that, and now we're reading this reflective, very personal, anecdote-filled book by a, a blogger-author named Rachel Held Evans. And you may have heard of her. She is now deceased um, um, at a very young age. But she, she wrote in this book, um, Searching for Sunday, she, she said something on a radio interview, and she said it startled her when the words left her mouth. She said, I'm a Christian because Christianity names and addresses sin. It acknowledges the reality that the evil we observe in the world is also present within ourselves. So I I love that observation that that we are sinners. And and I love that, that we have to recognize that we need the Holy Spirit's power to soften our pride, To lower our guard so that we can see what's wrong with us. To see how prideful and cocky and ungracious we can be to other people. We need the Holy Spirit's power, honestly, to forgive ourselves. How many of you are are just every once in a while, this, this circle of unhealthy thoughts just gets stuck in you? You know what? I know in theory Jesus loves me. I know that I belong to God as a child who's beloved, but... I'm a scumbag. I have a terrible history. If I told Pastor Dan what I did in my first marriage, if I told Pastor Dan what I did in my last job, if I told Pastor Dan the kind of thoughts that get stuck in my head, if I told Pastor Dan about the addiction that I'm wrestling with that nobody else knows, I don't think that he would smile when he saw me coming up to communion. No, but the Holy Spirit doesn't just soften our pride. The Holy Spirit gives us the confidence to be humble and the confidence to confess our sin, the power to forgive ourselves and trust that God has indeed called us beloved. The power to forgive is nurtured by the Holy Spirit in the church and it's role modeled in the communion of saints. And we get to practice being our better selves in the church, which is one of the best reasons One of the best reasons to bring you and your family to the church. I don't mean just caught, prairie, any church. Any any church that preaches the gospel, which means grace. Anyway, so the resurrection of the body. Now, a a lot of us, I think I got a, the resurrection of the dead. Yeah, my bad. (laughs) Do I have those, uh, are those comics lined up there? Or that, trying to, that may be a no. This thing, this, um, oh yeah, okay. I don't know if you can read it. You were a believer, yes, but you skipped the not being a jerk about it part. <laughs> so so a lot of us think, just hold on to a second. A lot of us think that when we, when we die, you know, it's a pretty quick nanosecond and then boom, we're in front of Jesus or St. Peter, as the case may be. Um, for some reason, I think that's St. Peter because I think Jesus would look a little younger, but, you know, who knows? Um... <laughs> The details aren't clear. <laughs> but remember, there, we have a biblical reason for believing that. First of all, Jesus said that in Luke, in the, in the Luke version of the crucifixion, he said to the thief, um, I tell you truly, this day you'll be with me in paradise. So it's not like we're off the reservation as far as is thinking what the Bible said. It's also more comfortable than what we just would confess in the Apostles' Creed, the resurrection of the dead. I mean, There's just got to be a lot to process here. Um, If you figure out, and this is where I kind of get stuck, and did anybody pass calculus? Did anybody pass by a large margin? My wife, Laura, not at the time. She was a fellow high school senior. She helped me get through calculus. And I just remembering thought to myself, I don't know how to do this even after I passed. But I think it's a calculus problem, right, where you add the sums over time and whatnot. um, So you think about all the people who've been Christian since 2000, I'm sorry, since 033 AD, and all the people who've lived, all the people who've trusted in Jesus, and then if on on one day we all got resurrected, I'm trying to think, so what's the, this is now algebra, so what's the square footage of land that each of us is going to need to stand up You know, it's like, have you ever been to a beach that feels too crowded and, you know, you're supposed to be having fun? It's a good thing, but you're like, this doesn't feel good. And I'm thinking, the resurrection of the dead, I'm sure it's going to be more pleasant than that. But, I mean, it's just like, it makes me think, I wonder if there's another way. I wonder if there's another way to interpret that. And, you know, I sometimes wonder, I'm all in favor of the option, if you would, if you want, of taking a non-literal route here, that judgment doesn't have to only mean that we're kind of coming out of our graves together on Judgment Day. Resurrection might mean might mean that, and I'm sure that God can find a way to make room on the square footage allotted. But with the with the idea that maybe maybe this is like a landing, you know, on the stairway to heaven. Maybe this is a we're not. The resurrection isn't the final part where the mansion is. But it's a, it's a stop, it's a resting place to collect our breath and admire the view and thank God for what Jesus has done for us. But when we look at how St. Paul described it, he uses both literal and metaphor as, uh, as meanings. Romans 8 9, but you are not controlled by your sinful nature. You are controlled by the Spirit if you have the Spirit of God living in you. And remember that those who do not have the Spirit of Christ living in them do not belong to him at all. And Christ lives within you. So even though your body will die because of sin, the Spirit gives you life because you have been made right with God. The Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. And just as God raised Jesus from the dead, he will give, you, he will give life to your mortal bodies by the same Spirit living within you. And I believe that means he, the Holy Spirit will fill the bodies of the dead and gone and, and saints, and, and that will help us rise. However our bodies were disposed of or decayed or cremated, irrelevant. In other words, it's pretty important to your long-range plans with God that you have the Holy Spirit inside of you. And so what does it mean? Kind of back to uh, Florence the phlebotomist. Does it mean that you you raise your hands every time the band gets on stage and you're ready to sing? Um, She had a particular helpful image for me. She said, no matter how old the ladies were, they all wore high heels, and they all jumped. <laughs> and she goes, at my age, I wouldn't even do that. <laughs> so so the, the, whole, the whole spirit-filled, quote, worship, that's optional. It's, it's nothing to laugh at. It's just, it's just optional. But maybe it means that the spiritual gifts that God's given you, you actually use to bless your community, the church, and the world. That, that's probably more to the point. But I think it, it, it means that if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you trust him enough to let the Holy Spirit fill you. And here's the scary thing about the Holy Spirit in you, is it wants to change you. It's not, oh good, i just here to keep you warm and encourage you, so keep being you. Uh-uh. If you trust Jesus enough to resurrect your life, he wants you to trust him enough to let the Holy Spirit Come inside and power it. And this is what Paul wrote in Galatians. Galatians 5, 22, 23. But the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Those are called what? The fruits of the Spirit. So yeah, is resurrection meant to be taken literally? I mean, I, I can take it literally. I trust in, in God's word, and especially the parts I don't understand. I'm like, oh, he's God, I'm not. Um, so, but if, if, if that's a struggle for you, and you're like, I'd be a Christian, except for all that popping out of the grave stuff. Um, even the Bible sometimes makes resurrection metaphorical. Look at Ezekiel 27. This is the Old Testament, of course. So I spoke the messages he commanded me, and breath came into their bodies. This is from the Valley of Dry Bones. Um, Sorry, I went by that kind of fast. This is his uh, vision of the Valley of Dry Bones that represents all of Israel that's been so decayed and wrecked. Um, So I spoke the message as he commanded me, and breath came into their bodies. So they all came to life and stood up on their feet, a great army. I prophesied to them and said, This is what the Sovereign Lord says. O my people, I will open your graves of exile and cause you to rise again. Then I will bring you back to the land of Israel. When this happens, oh my people, you will know that I am the Lord. I will put my spirit in you and you will live again and return home to your own land. Yeah, I mean, so resurrection wise, God will make the math work out somehow. I just hope it's not like in a really bad Kansas heat wave and then we're all smushed on the prairie together and you know, I'm like, take me to heaven quickly. Um, but the big question is, does the resurrection have to be taken literally to be a believer? I think the better question is, is the resurrection meant to be taken seriously? And for me, friends, the answer, of course, is yes. See, God's plan was not just to get us all up into heaven for eternal life, but to resurrect and change our world through his Holy Spirit so that the the world we live in now is different and his saints will be able to showcase and welcome all God's children into an abundant life while we're still here on earth. In fact, I completely believe what God said to Abraham in the first book of the Bible gets fulfilled in the last book of the Bible when God speaks this to the prophecy that he gave to John. And these are the two verses. Genesis 12, he says this to Abraham, I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you and make you famous and you will be a blessing to others and all the families on earth will be blessed through you. And then so that's Genesis 12 and then interestingly Revelation 21 says this Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the old city and for the old heaven and the old earth had disappeared and the sea was gone also And I saw the holy city the new Jerusalem coming down from God out of heaven like a bride beautifully dressed for her husband I heard a shout from the throne saying Look God's home is now among his people He will live with them and they will be his people God himself will be with him. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, sorrow, crying, or pain. All these things are gone forever. Now, whether that's literal or metaphorical, that's a vision that I, I can say amen to. For those of us that work hard to make the world a better place, whether it's through your job or your, your, extra, your extracurricular work, whether it's the heartbeat of your life, These are the kind of things that happen when we trust the Holy Spirit. So do we believe that God has a big finish to this big eternal story? For me, that answer is yes. That's what life everlasting means. But this is the most critical thing. See, regardless of how long any one of our individual rap sheets of bad choices are, God's not interested in convicting you. He died to reconcile you to Him And to the rest of the world that he died to save. And then to bring you, with the Spirit, to his home in the next. And that's why at the end of this thick, rich, and wonderful creed, most of us, I hope all of us who are believers, can say yes and yea God. Which, by the way, in the Hebrew is amen.